If you or a loved one has been diagnosed with an acute obsession of true crime, caught discussing tragic events with unwilling participants, or kept awake at night by the paranormal or just plain absurd, you've found the right place. All others, beware of catching this dangerous bug as we begin to talk about the facts. Once again, fact friends, welcome to Let's Talk About the Facts. This is our 11th episode, everyone. 11. And I can't say that I'm not shocked that we've made it this far. We've had guests. We've had antics. We've had verbal slips, like the one I just did. And not to mention many jokes. But also, we've talked about some cases that needed to be brought to light, some things in the paranormal region, and other wild things in between. That's what I do. Elizabeth Fury, citizen detective slash sleuth. And with me today is my friend Gia. What's going on, everybody? I'm a uh, part-time student and a full-time biggest chicken you'll ever meet. It's so true. I watched (laughs) The Conjuring with her and I basically just had to dictate the whole movie. (laughs) I watched about half of it. Yeah, she made it through half. Uh, so Gia has been a longtime supporter of the pod, a great friend and supporter of me. Uh, just like personally, like who else tolerates this weirdo while yelling at her computer and trying her very best? <laughs> but anyway, today you are all in for a treat. If I could, I would name this episode Karen's Gone Wild, which would be very low hanging fruit because there is indeed a Karen in this story, a woman named Karen. I'll be honest, I have to soapbox to get into this story. It's impossible not to do. But this story just brings up some things that are so relevant to what's going on these days, and I have to say it. I'll regret it if I don't, so buckle up for a couple of minutes and I'll charge through and then jump back into our spooky season eve episode, sort of. We only have one more after this, and hopefully that one will be a true banger. (laughs) This one, who's to say? I'm excited. Thank you. See, look, I got one person. (laughs) Hopefully all people. So, but first, we're going to talk about home. Yes, I said it, home. The thing that many Americans don't have right now, thanks to this administration's response to an international pandemic. Herd immunity? You mean death to the poor and steal their money to give to those who already have far too much. But it's as if we, they don't quite remember those history lessons. Or they think they're too big to fail. Can't wait to see how that battle plan explodes in their face. (laughs) Claiming that any sort of Christian principle, that doctrine, is straight up blasphemous. Ooh, I forgot the word supports in there, but you know, I think that was the hand of God saying, I don't support that. But okay. (laughs) I'm just saying, I did not attend a non-denominational Christian school to come out unable to school a basic back row baptist who's toting guns like it's the purge coming around the corner and spewing vitriol about human beings due to the color of their skin religious preference gender sexual orientation what have you all i'm saying is that christ boy quite literally said take care of the widows and the children and the poor and to not build up materialistic wealth on earth so coldest take on earth is that someone didn't read the fucking book I wonder if it burns when Bunker Boy holds that Bible. So enough about how homes have been ripped from thousands upon thousands of Americans. Even though shelter is a basic human right in this modern world, the turn of millennium world, anyone who says otherwise should attempt to live without it and live with it all like those they condemn to the street without the generational wealth that they're so used to living with. And that's just basic luxury. Home should be a haven, a place in this world that you can feel safe. This is a place where you're supposed to be able to quarantine. Um, Let's say you should be able to close yourself out from the outside world, from maskless assholes to political idiots, and just take like a deep breath and recharge and focus on survival. Home is supposed to be a place where you can lock the doors and windows and not worry about unlawful police entrance and shooting of an innocent human being. Home is where you're supposed to make memories for life. A place where you can really settle in and feel like you belong. Not a place that is full of terror and hatred. How ideal. 
I didn't find that sort of place until my mid-twenties, so, you know, hey. Mm-hmm. It's a journey for us all. If you're still on that journey, you can do it. I believe in you. Tweet me. I'll give you some encouragement. But to add to the awkwardness of sometimes awkward living environments, if anyone lives in, like, New York, L.A., big cities, welcome to awkward living environments. <laughs> um, don't forget those nosy neighbors. And I can't say shit about this because I'm a nosy neighbor, but not for, like, any other reason then I don't really have any other drama going on in my life. Like, I just love knowing what, like, the shit is going down with Sarah and Doug and 13B and, like, how Frank's cats are. Like, all of this is very important to me. For our safety. Yeah. For our safety. It's for our safety, but it's also, like, my real-life TV show. (laughs) Like, I gotta know what's up. Yeah. But also, I've lived in apartments the majority of my life, so, like, I can't help it. It's not like I'm trying to be up in their biz. I'm just trying to be like, oh, man, my friend just had surgery. I'm going to bake her a cake. Or like, oh, no, they're getting a divorce. Whose side am I on? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, my um, my friend said that her, her dad knew everybody on their block and everybody knew yes. everyone and everyone left their doors unlocked all the time because you know that's terrifying but we don't do that kind of thing no. anymore because nobody knows anybody in their neighborhood anymore we do i know everybody in our building oh yeah we almost do, yeah but yeah. it's very unlikely yeah that's like terrifying. how many people out there do you think actually know their neighbor's name look i could know everyone in my neighborhood and i would never leave my door unlocked look i know plenty of people that, like, I would trust to live next door to me, and I still wouldn't leave my door unlocked because I'm not a fucking idiot, okay? <laughs> Look. The 70s were different. There was only, like, five people on the block, and if something went wrong, they only had five people to choose from. Like, who did it, you know? You know, it could be that guy who just drove in through town, blew in, or it could be Bernie. I don't know. Yeah. Or it could be that Donald guy. Yeah. You never know. Or sometimes you do. Um... But then you have, like, some Ethels, some Monas, some Berts, but not Roberts, like my brother, because, like, honestly, my Robert barely remembers half of what I tell him, much less what's going on next door, okay? And, like, I'm his favorite sister, and I'm willing to fight for that. So, basically, those nosy neighbors take it too far. They're like, "Mm." I saw you left your pie on the windowsill for a little too long yesterday, Amber. Like, those kind of people? No, too much. But, like, imagine, though, if you will, having possibly the world's worst neighbor. Just imagine. Okay? That's what our story will be about. The worst neighbor possible. And you won't believe where. Or you will. Because we're jumping into Circleville, Ohio, 1976. Oh. Oh, yeah. You nailed that. (laughs) Snap. How does this relate to spooky season? Because if this happened to anyone, you'd be freaked the absolute fuck out. If it happened to you, to anyone you know, and sometimes the scariest things are what people can do to one another. Not necessarily the paranormal or the supernatural. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. People scare me more than anything. Yeah, people are awful. I think the scariest episode of Supernatural was, like, when it was human beings. Yeah. And I was like, I can't watch this episode ever again. I fully agree. My biggest fear are people. Human beings. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So, yeah. As always, Gia has no idea what story I'm about to tell her. She just nailed that 1970s (laughs) out of nowhere. But we all know that nobody locked their doors in the 1970s when serial killers decided to run amok. So, here we are. Circleville is a city in which I wrote a terrible sentence. Circleville is a city in and the county seat of Pickaway County, Ohio, 25 miles south of Columbus. Columbus is also a seat, a seat, a city in Ohio. And he was a terrible person. So, fuck Christopher Columbus. The population was 13,314 at the 2010 census. I believe in the 1970s, it was around 11,000. The city is best known today. 
as the host of the Circleville Pumpkin Show, an annual festival held since 1903. Yep. Not for anything else. Anyway, so I found these two additional incidents in Circleville in addition to our story, so I had to mention them because they're wild. So in 1967, Bingman's Drugstore, Bingman's a cool name, and multiple nearby down buildings in downtown Circleville, they were destroyed when Lee Holbrook, the husband of a drugstore employee, brought a wooden box containing bundled dynamite and detonated it during an apparent struggle with the store's staff. Holbrook and four store employees perished in the blast in the following fire. Nearly 30 people were injured. Holbrook's wife was not at the store, nor among the injured. Wild. Um, I feel like I'm messing with my papers too much, so I'm going to set them down. In October of 1999, which I was alive in that year, Circleville was hit by an F3 tornado. And so for those of you who do not... Know what F3 is? Yeah, or didn't grow up in Tornado Valley like I did. Um, the F is the number... In front of the number is uh, stands for Fujita, for the Fujita uh, scale created by Ted Fujita, a Japanese-American meteorologist. Love this man. Who created a scale of tornado severity with numbers from 0 to 6 based on the degree of observed damage. So it's not the largeness or quote-unquote badness, of, but like the, how much damage did it do. So like a tiny tornado in Los Angeles could be an F5. And a huge tornado in the Mojave Desert, that could still be an F1. But we now use the EF system, which started in 2007, more accurately matches wind speeds to the severity of damage caused by the tornado. So it's just the enhanced Fujita scale. So thank Ted Fujita, Japanese-American meteorologist, who honestly did us the biggest service for Tornado Alley, and I have to thank him because I grew up through it. So, What's the biggest tornado you've seen? Um, I was in an F5 the day before my finals week of college, my final finals week. Yeah, it was a mile wide. I have this reoccurring dream of a tornado. I'm not sure what it means, but... Have you been in one? No, never. I've never even seen one. Oh, man. I saw it's... a dust devil once. That was... I, I can't even, like, describe tornadoes unless I can, like, use my body. And right now I'm pinned between Gia and my dog, Amy, which, if you follow me on Twitter, my dog, Amy, is amazing. She's a brat, and I love everything about her. So... Were you happy to trade uh, earthquakes for our tornadoes for earthquakes? Yeah, because earthquakes don't happen that often. And also, like, the ground is shaking. Oh, no. Rather than, like, you know, oh, you're going to go there into the There goes my house. Yeah, no, you're <laughs> going into the middle of the house to hope to not die. Like, yeah, let me, get, like, to be honest, you know, I've seen worse. But, like, that one tornado the day before my final finals week, it took out, like, the town I was living in. And we were, like, the Sonic I had gone to, like, the day before. America's driving. Um, <laughs> I know. It, like, was gone. And then it hit a lumber mill. And it had slammed, like, lumber into the, like, curbs. And it was sticking out. And it was, like, two by fours and four by fours just slammed into concrete. And you're like, how That's did insane. this happen? And, like, of course, I was going through it alone and, like, screaming on the phone, probably yeah. to my brother. Like, Robert, I'm going to die. And he's like, you're not going to die. But he's probably thinking to himself, she might die. Yeah. But of all things, you know, I tend to I tend to live, you know. I'm not going to lie. I haven't died yet. Um, <laughs> hopefully. How are you sure, though? What if you did die that day and this is just, you know... I, I tweet a lot, and, you know, otherwise this would be a really weird, like, delusion, unless everybody I know is dead. Maybe this is purgatory. Oh, no, I'm freaked out. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> this is a freaked out podcast, guys. Let's get creeped out. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, so those two incidents in Circleville, they made the Wikipedia page, and you know me, I have to prep you all for the weakest link. We can't disappoint Jane Lynch. That would be the worst thing to ever happen to me. Um, 
But we're here for the Circleville Letters. The OG Unsolved Mysteries episode was called Poisoned Pen. And I love that. Poisoned Pen. And you know, let's talk about the facts. We're going to talk about it. So much. So let me give you context first. What's going on in the world? You know that's our thing. So 1976 was a wild year. Not to mention that we have well established that the 1970s were so goddamn weird. In a previous episode with Kelly Larson, I believe, Gia, you've listened to it. Mm -hmm. It's like we just keep banging these pots and pans like lunatics. And we're like, the 1970s, what the fuck? But let me tell you, 1976, some cool, some weird, some terrible. So Concord joins the plane business and cuts the flight time for transatlantic flights by three and a half hours. Then it would later die, and it doesn't take United Airlines with them. I am upset about that. Why, why is United even? Mm. And they were also referenced in the Lindsay Lohan parent trap. And honestly, at the time, I had no idea what they were talking about. But now I'm like, huh. That'd be nice. <laughs> you know, it would be. Three and a half hours shorter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Microsoft debuted the year before, but Steve Jobs busted onto the scene with that turtleneck and Steve Wozniak to produce Macintosh. And we knew that colorful Apple, and we all should have invested, right? Like, I was negative 15 or something, but it's, like, my own fault. I didn't invest in Apple. Um the useless $2 bill was issued. Don't get me started. Useless? I thought they were good luck. Good luck? Yeah, the $2 bills, aren't they for good luck? It's worth $2, and that's it. Yeah, but if you get one, it means you have good luck. It means that you got a $2 bill. It's alright, I don't need luck anyways. Yeah, I was like, I don't need luck. I got sweat. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> But more importantly, like, you know, if men make so much, like, a dollar and a, we make, like, what, 70-something cents, maybe, like, 60 cents? Mm-hmm. If they're making $2, how much are we making? That's even worse. That just hurts. Yeah. Ouch. I can't think about those things because it just makes me want to lay on the floor and cry because quarantine. Anyway. the first I like to sit in a hot bathtub. And cry? And, and have a tear. Well, like a hot bathtub, then you can just sweat and pretend like your tears are sweat. Yeah. Yeah, I dig it. I, I do it because then no one can really tell you're crying. Cause but who's in the bathroom with you? That's true. You're, you're, you're right. Because you also could cry in the shower and be like, it's not me, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> this is Let's Talk About the Facts, and we endorse crying in the shower. Uh, the space first shuttle type pro. The first space shuttle prototype was unveiled, the Enterprise, and that cost $10 billion. It never made it to space because it was a prototype, but the cast of Star Trek were there for the unveiling, though, which I think is glorious. And you can see a picture of it if you Google, like, the Enterprise. It's so cute. Like, oh, I, they all look so pleased and, like... Happy to be there. Yes. Never give up. Never surrender. Oh, that's, yep, yep. I was going to say, that's Galaxy Quest, but that is the best Star Trek movie. Uh, The U.S. celebrated its bicentennial in 1976, which I think is wild, because that was just when the Declaration was signed. The Constitution was written during the Philadelphia Convention, which we now call the Constitutional Convention, which did its dirty from May 25th to September 17th, 1787. And it was signed in on September 17th, 1787. So wouldn't that be the bicentennial? Or am I just like a stickler for accuracy? No, either way. Yeah. Like, I fully agree. We weren't a country yet. Mm-hmm. We still had to fail with the Articles of Confederation. And like, I'm just saying. Anyway. Jimmy Carter booted the never-elected George... George? I, you know, I even wrote George. Jorge. <laughs> the never-elected Gerald Ford from office. So Ford became pres- president after Spiro Agnew resigned, so he was VP. And then Richard Nixon deuced, and then he was president. Ta- stop. Yep. 
talk about an easy way to fail up, right? And yeah, then Jimmy Carter became Le Presidente. Wait, El Presidente. Yeah. Yeah, I fucked that up. Whatever. I took French and I fucked those up. <laughs> so. <laughs> we're speaking Spanish. <laughs> I know. I'm working on it. So we're going to take a turn for the real sad real quick. So South Africa had a very sad moment to recognize. I believe it's pronounced the Soweto uprising was a series of demonstrations and protests led by black school children in South Africa that began the morning of uh, June 16th, 1976. So students from numerous Sowetan schools began to protest in the streets of Soweto in response to the introduction of Afrikaans, I believe that's pronounced, I could be totally wrong, um, as the medium of the instruction in local schools. It's estimated that 20,000 students took part in the protest and they were met with fierce police brutality and many were murdered with guns. So the number of people killed in the uprising is usually given as 176 but estimates up to 700 have been made. So in remembrance of these events, June 16th is now a public holiday in South Africa named Youth Day. So that was rough because I think everyone knows that South Africa was under apartheid rule at the time. Um, Most likely we'll be doing a whole episode on what apartheid was for those of newer generations who aren't aware because they don't think it's taught in school but it's very important that we know so the 70s rough so we're going to narrow our focus deep into ohio into that tiny city or circle if you will of circleville so 1976 was very different for the small town in that ohio i almost said idaho ohio i know my states (laughs) As the residents began receiving strange letters. These letters were threatening, detailed personal information, and sometimes even sexually explicit. And and if any of you know what it's like to be in a small town, y'all already know them knickers are in knots because everybody knows it. Like, everybody. So if you get a letter about somebody or somebody else that's telling you sexually explicit details, yikes.com. Yeah. Like, that's a yikes for me, dog. That's a yikes for me, too. Yep. So the fact that there was no one that stood out as an initial culprit was terrifying to the Circle Villians. Circle Villians. (laughs) Circle Zoids. Circle Zoids. Um, so, some facts to know about Circleville, now that you know what we're dealing with. Is this the basic Debbie, or are we, like, dealing with interesting characters? Okay, so according to my research, shout out to Recess Gretchen was my fave, Circleville is just over 95% white, yikes, and 74% of those married couples own a home. What the fuck? That's unheard of. I can't. Most people in town have at least a high school diploma. So quaint, quiet, boring. I probably... Boring. (laughs) Yep, I was like, I probably would have died here, at least emotionally. So we have Mary Gillespie. She is a bus driver for a local town school, which I did not realize would be such a lucrative job back in the 70s. No judgment on bus driving. Sounds like fun. A lot of kids love their bus driver. I did. Um, I did, too. So yeah. did Forrest Gump. So did Forrest Gump. She was great. Like, yeah, so... But I didn't realize how, like, lucrative that job was. Um, That'd probably be my job if I lived in that town. Yeah, for I'd real. I'd just be, like, the bus lady. The bus lady. Oh, my God. So, um... She received a letter from the Circleville writer. Writer. Not, like, pony writer. But allow me to read the document in question. Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about knowing him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned 
has been notified and everything will be over soon. Yeah. Bruh. Bruh. <laughs> I'm just looking at your face like, <laughs> So, Mary Gillespie was accused of supposedly non-existent affair with the superintendent of schools. It was postmarked Columbus, Ohio, but had no return address. So, within eight weeks, Mary received a similar letter, and then a third letter arrived saying, Gillespie, you've had two weeks and done nothing. Admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. She kept the letters to herself until her husband, Ron, received one as well. So obviously, Mary and the superintendent, Gordon Massey, denied this alleged affair. And who wouldn't in the face of these charges? I mean, like, why does this letter writer even care? Did anyone stop to think that? Like, of course, others were receiving, like, receiving letters too. A lot of it, like, apparently were related to this, but... Please pause to consider, what's the motive? Did anyone care? Why? I don't think anyone stopped to think about that. What's the motive? So, Ron Gillespie's letter reads as follows. We must inform you that your wife is having an affair with Mr. Massey. She has chased him until he caught her. Eliminate them both before they eliminate you. Remember... We know where you work and now know, and know your red and white truck. No one can help you. Think of your children and their future. Call the school board and report the truth after you finish your investigation. Notify the school board immediately. Again, your life is in danger. Wild! Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so Mary and Ron... <laughs> told only three people about the letters. Ron's sister, the Karen from before. This would have been on Twitter. Like, if this, oh, were, if this were in real life, this uh, whole thing would have been screenshots this, on Twitter. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know, right? Like, I can't. I, every time I only think of, like... people knew. It's, like, only three people. I'm, like, 3,000. Oh, my <laughs> God. So, Karen's husband, Paul Freshour, which is an interesting last name, and then Paul's sister... Mary had some ideas about who might be sending the letters. They decided to have Paul write letters to the suspect, claiming that they know who they were. The plan seemed to have worked, because the letter stopped for several weeks. Mary believed that the writer was a fellow school bus driver named David Longberry, as opposed to Shortberry. What about Mediumberry? <laughs> Mary believed that David was angry over a past rejection and had taken to writing letters to express frustration. Like, why couldn't he just, like, write a sad poem in his journal and move on? So Paul eventually wrote the letter to David, demanding that he cease the threatening of the Gillespie so just imagine, like, you're living your life, fucking some superintendent, chilling with your husband and kids, doing your small town thing when some weirdo gets up all in your business, threatens your husband. And, I mean, there even is a possibility that Mary didn't have the affair at all. A possibility. I mean, I don't know. But let the woman live. I know. That's what I'm saying. I don't give a, I don't give a fuck who she fucks. Like, <laughs> let a woman live. She's riding, she's driving a bus. Yeah. What do you want from her? She's only a human. I know. I mean, I'm just saying, I hope this Gordon guy was worth it. <laughs> so large signs started, soon started to appear around the town claiming that Massey and the Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter were involved in a sexual relationship. That escalation of attacks terrified the family, and soon Ron was getting up extra early and he would drive around town just to take down the signs before his daughter saw them. So, like, okay. How did no one stake this out? What, What's the point of police? Mm. Like, don't you think, like, Ron's safety's been threatened. Now the safety of this child. 
And not to mention, like, Mary. I know it's the 70s, and the police work in a small town was, like, what it is. But don't you think somebody would have, like, had a night patrol? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would have thought. But no, they didn't look to see who was putting these fucking signs up. So nine months after that initial letter, yeah, mm-hmm, Ron's at home, chilling with the kids, when he receives a mysterious phone call. What time? Night. Mm-mm. We're going to say night. It's getting weird. It's, oh. It's getting weird. <laughs> she says it's <laughs> getting weird. Getting creeped out. So Ron had been receiving letters threatening his life, informing that his pickup truck was being watched and his movements followed, and the harassment seemed to extend to the phone call. Ron slams down the phone receiver, grabbed his gun, which was a small .25 caliber pistol. He, like, kissed his daughter and then stormed out the house. Because that's a dad. Mm -hmm. It's, like, such a dad move. Mm -hmm. So, again... Where's the police? Questions we ask ourselves often. My thoughts, they were probably harassing someone who didn't need to be harassed. Rather than, you know, helping a person who kind of needed help. But that's just me. I don't care for them. But Ron must have decided to confront the letter writer. Because it seems that the phone call that must have been like the step over the ledge for him. Or he knew the voice on the other end. But we'll never know. Because Ron only made it to the end of his street where he lost control of the truck and he slammed into a large tree, killing him in the process. What if the call was, TVs right now are half off at Best Buy in an hour. Why do you need a gun for that? For an hour. Have you seen Black Friday? This was in August. Was it? I'm joking. I think it was in August. But here's my thing. What if... I'm just trying to uncreep (laughs) myself out right now by adding humor. This is me coping with humor. I got a better one for you. What if the call was coming from inside the house? Okay. Did it? Tell me we have no idea. We'll never know. We have no idea who made that call or what they said. Um, so Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, hold on to that name, of Pickaway County, examined Ron's gun and a single shot had been fired just before the accident. No evidence was found at the site and neither the bullet nor the casing was recovered. What? Like, what? Amy, what are you doing? Speaking of what? Hey, ma'am. You know, pause for dog drama. Okay, so, blood test would show that Ron's blood alcohol content content was 0.16, twice over the legal limit. However, Ron wasn't known to be a big drinker, and his children didn't believe him to be drunk. And they were the last ones to see him alive. Sheriff Radcliffe, who originally believed foul play was involved, changed his mind based on the blood alcohol content, finding and concluded that Ron had died as a result of a drunk driving accident. So, yeah. Sheriff Radcliffe had claimed that a person of interest had been grilled about the odd nature in which Ron died, but because he passed a polygraph test, Sheriff Radcliffe just let him go. And we all know that a polygraph is junk science. It's inadmissible in court. It should only be used as a tool. If that, there's no real veracity in a polygraph. An honest person can fail and a sociopath can pass. So, Radcliffe, you fucked up there. Ron's smashed pickup was also disposed of in a junkyard in Ohio, days after the accident eliminating any opportunity to collect forensic evidence so also a massive fuck up and considering that it was initially considered to be a homicide 
what evidence was even gathered initially. So, this displeased the Circleville writer who sent a letter after Ron's death accusing Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe of covering up the crime. Local residents started receiving their own letters revealing Mary Gillespie's affair with Gordon Massey, accusing Sheriff Radcliffe of orchestrating the cover-up, and Massey gets divorced. Mary then begins a relationship with him, but she maintained, and has always maintained, their romance did not start until after Ron's death. A likely story. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't say no, but I can't say yes. So, February 1983. Remember, we started out in 1976. The letter writer's attacks on Mary leveled up. Like, Mario levels. We're going up, guys. They had begun to place horrible signs along the roadsides of Circleville, and Mary would see them on her bus route. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mary's had enough. She pulled her bus over by one of the signs. Like, storms out, allegedly. According to the Unsolved Mystery reenactment, it was a storm. And she basically ripped it down. But just before she did, she noticed something odd, like a piece of twine that hung down. And then there was a crudely made box that the poster was attached to. So instead of just grabbing the sign, she actually removed the whole structure from the roadside and brought it back to the bus. So she opened the lid and it opened the glue seal that held it all together. And inside she found two large blocks of styrofoam holding a pistol in place and the twine attached to the trigger. This very poorly built booby trap was set up to fire at anyone who tore down the sign. And what cracked me up the most was the amount of times Unsolved Mystery says booby-trapped in that episode. How many of these did they have up? Just that one. But I mean, like, when you call it a booby-trap, it's, like, not threatening. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mary, obviously, she's like, what? But here's the thing. She later testifies that she thought the gun was, like, a starter pistol for races, uses blanks, rather than a live firearm. But, and here's where it gets weird. Rather than immediately report the incident to the police, she took it home. Nobody calls the police in this town. I, I, um, <laughs> don't blame them. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> What's going on? It's the 70s. So, she took the device home. And then she finally took it in after several hours And upon investigation, in the recovery of a poorly filed serial number, so, like, every gun has a serial number on Mm -hmm. it, and you can attempt to file it off. I think it was a lot easier in the 70s. Um, The police found that it belonged to Paul Freshour, Ron's now former brother-in-law. Karen, Ron's sister, had cheated on Ron and resulted in divorce. Ron was able to get custody of the children and retain the house. So, February 25th, 1983. Sheriff Radcliffe asked Paul to meet with him and take a handwriting test. He basically asked Paul to copy the handwriting from the letters and then also write the letters while repeating them verbally. All of this was a wide load of horse shit. It basically staged Paul to fail. Why would he do his best to copy a letter then copy it from memory. Like, that's a school tactic, and there is no scientific or evidence-based method to what Radcliffe did. It was just nothing but bonkers. And then after that test, Paul took Sheriff Radcliffe, I can't believe I'm still calling him Sheriff at this point, to his garage and showed him to, like, where he kept his gun. Paul said it had been stolen a while back, and only he and Karen knew where it was. Afterward, the two returned to the courthouse, where Paul was arrested and charged with attempted murder. On October 24, 1983, he went on trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie. Although he was never charged with writing the threatening letters, they became a crucial part of evidence against him. 
a handwriting expert testified that Paul was the letter writer. Mary also <laughs> testified that she believed he was the writer after his wife slash her sister-in-law visited her with the same suspicion. Paul's boss also testified that he was not at work on the day that the booby trap was found. But Paul had an alibi for the most of the day. Unfortunately, he never took the stand in his defense. If he had, it would have deemed that over a thousand letters and postcards would have been admissible in court, involving hundreds of residents. Though maintaining his innocence, he was convicted and was given a 7 to 24 year sentence for attempted murder. This is the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. Only because, like, I've seen actual killers get less, and I've seen, like, rapists get less, mm -hmm. and then this guy, for attempted murder, gets this. Bonkers. 24 years. Yeah! This is my whole life. That, that is your whole life. My whole life. Like, imagine that. So, while there, he himself receives letters from the writer, who was determined to keep him there. Others still receive letters, postmarked from Columbus, even though he was in prison in Lima. I believe it's Lima. It could be Lima. It's like the bean. Um, he was a model prisoner, but Radcliffe had him sent to solitary, which is cruel and unusual punishment. Why do we still use it? Ah! Okay, I'm done. Just makes me beyond angry. So even there, letters kept arriving. While he was in prison, he even received a mysterious letter that stated, Now when are you going to believe that you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set him up, they stay there. Or they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? The prison warden... Uh, that's the end of the letter, sorry. The prison warden was certain that he could not have sent any of the letters. In December of 1990... I was negative one. Paul becomes eligible for parole. He was denied due to the letters, even though there was no way he could be sending them. In May of 1994, Paul was finally paroled and he continued to maintain his innocence. However, the author of the letters has never been revealed to this day. So, Paul puts together a 176-page PDF chock full of his side of the events, press coverage, a lot of the trial transcripts, and like any official documents maintaining his own innocence in the letter writing and the booby trap. Booby boobies <laughs> you can't it's not threatening when you say booby mm -hmm. it focused on several conspiracies that became a mountain of corruption by those at the top of law enforcement within circleville so here's what part of his letter says dear fbi i'm asking you to get involved in my former brother-in-law's murder because I believe it was a murder and a cover-up by the sheriff of Pickaway County here in the state of Ohio. I was sent to prison because a series of obscene and threatening letters had the county in panic. I did ten and a half years, and the letters continued undisturbed and uninterrupted, just as always. I believe that the obscene, threatening, and dangerous letters were concealed because they would interfere with Sheriff Radcliffe becoming the National Sheriff's Association's president. He wrote, the, See the date of the letters and the date of his involvement with the National Sheriff's Association. The crime rate in Pickaway County at the time would have, been eliminate, would have eliminated him from appointment. So, in fact, this was just the start of the corruption, according to Fresh Hour, and he goes on to accuse the sheriff of mismanagement of funds as well as uh, fudging crime figures for a number of years. And you can actually read his full document that he submitted to the FBI. It's posted on the internet for free. Um, just Google it. Google is free. And, or you can DuckDuckGo it. I support DuckDuckGo. They're all about privacy. 
and make sure that, you know, your search history is yours. Can you imagine being in jail for that long for something you didn't do? I think about it every time I think about the Central Park Five, yeah. Yeah. Like losing your entire childhood and young adulthood. I was, um, while I was watching the Kardashians and, um... I, I can't. <laughs> Kim Kardashian has become an attorney and she helped this woman get out of prison because her partner was selling drugs out of her house. Mm-hmm. So she was sent to prison too. Even oh, though she didn't as an accomplice? Yeah, as an accomplice. And she was in prison for 15 years, even though she had, wasn't involved at all. I know. And then there's these people who get, like, probation for something heinous. Mm-hmm. And you're like, how is this fair? Yeah, there was a woman in prison for um, for 12 years for selling weed while, like, rapists are in there for, what, like, 10 years? Oh, later? it's, like, seven. Oh, this one woman got, like, 20 years for lying on like the school form for trying to send her kid to a better school yeah for how long i think it was like 10 years what the fudge maybe it was 20 i can't remember what the fudge but yeah it's obscene yeah justice isn't just guys and gals well i think us women already knew that but anybody who's not a man justice isn't just But, you know, the part that I find so intriguing and actually, I'm, Paul has passed. He died in 2012, but he really legitimately wanted justice for Ron. And I don't think like anybody else did. It didn't seem like that to me. So on Unsolved Mysteries, while Unsolved Mysteries was researching this case, they received a letter of their own. And it read, forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. The Circleville writer. What? Okay, so there's some additional random information that I'd love to give you. And then we're going to talk about some, like, random thoughts. What we think. I think we both agree that Paul was totally innocent. I think so, too. Yeah, I mean, that writing is on the wall I, how do you do justice to a man like that who honestly I don't think he even saw that coming yeah um, and then I have some theories I have some thoughts but whatever okay so journalist Martin Yant investigated the story and found another possible suspect that could be the writer he discovered that 20 minutes before Mary found the booby trap Another bus driver on Mary's route had seen a suspicious man um, putting up the sign. Yeah. I lost my place. Oh, a suspicious man standing next to an El Camino. It was yellow. Um, Yant found that the possible suspect's brother owned the same type of car. The description does not match Paul. And he had a solid alibi at this specific time. Like, I believe the man was described with, like, sandy brown hair. And he was taller. It was weird. Um, Yeah. Also, the new batch of letters received uh, featured some horrific accusations. In one, the Circleville writer accused Roger Klein, who had prosecuted Paul Freshour, of having killed a pregnant school teacher. The writer threatened to dig up the victim's grave and mail the bones to the police unless Klein admitted to impregnating the woman and killing her and her unborn child. Yep. So the original air date for the Unsolved Mysteries episode was 11, November 11th, 1994. Uh, Dwight Radcliffe and Mary Gillespie declined to be interviewed for the story. But Paul is there. He is there the whole time. So if you want to hear this coming from Paul's, like, own mouth, you can definitely watch the Unsolved Mysteries episode. It's actually one of the most compelling, in my opinion. I think I'm giving you extra information that they didn't, but um, it's bonkers. So it's also not mentioned, but Paul allegedly admitted to Sheriff Radcliffe that 
He had written between 40 and 50 of the Circleville letters, but Paul discredits this by saying that if he had confessed, why didn't Radcliffe record it? Which is just basic police work. Mm-hmm. Then Dr. Ray Carroll, the county coroner accused of being a pedophile by the Circleville writer, was charged with 12 counts of gross immorality, sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, obscenity, and indecent disposure in December of 1993. So the Circleville writer did uncover that. David Longberry, the man that Mary Gillespie assumed was the writer, did forcibly assault an 11-year-old girl in 1999. He went on the run and currently is still a wanted fugitive. So, after being paroled, Paul did create his own website to profess his innocence, and we talked about all of that, but Paul's fingerprints were not found on the letter, the gun, or the buoy trap. The search of Paul's house did not turn up any corroborating evidence, like ammunition for the gun, Mm -hmm. and any material, or any material, sorry, that could have been used to, like make signs, or the trap. Mary Gillespie testified shortly after the divorce that Paul's ex-wife Karen confided in her that she believed Paul might have been the author of the threatening letters that she received years earlier. Paul's response in court was, if Karen really believed I'd done this, why did she never mention it in divorce court? So even though Paul was not working on the day, um, that Mary found the sign in the booby trap. Uh, he had alibi witnesses who placed him at his home between 12.30 and 4.30 p.m. The prosecution responded with like a surprise rebuttal witness who testified that he saw the sign along Mary's route between 11.30 and 12, but he never notified the police or other witnesses um, before Mary found the sign at 3.30. Also, you're banking on her tearing it down. Mm-hmm. Or not someone else tearing it down. Mm -hmm. So years later, what was discovered as key evidence was 20 minutes before. Oh, wait, we already did that. Sorry. Uh, Shoe prints that were found at the scene did not match Paul's shoe. And Karen Freshour was dating someone at the time uh, that owned a yellow El Camino. And it is suspected that there is more than one writer. I was going to say that. Yep. I was going to guess that. So what do you think? What do you think of the Circleville writer? Give me some thoughts. Uh, I would think that like a bunch of people piggybacked off of it. Um, I would think that a bunch of people piggybacked on it. Well, not a bunch, but like a couple people. I definitely think that those initial letters were written by a woman. Yeah? Yeah, the way that they're written, it's either by a woman... But also, it could be a teenager. Like, one of the theories I read was that um, Gordon Massey had a teenage child. I can't remember if it was a son or a daughter. But it was a teenage child. And a theory was that they were writing it to Mary Gillespie to, like, get her to stop. And then it kind of escalated. Um, I definitely think that Karen had something to do with Paul going to jail because... He got the kids in the house, and she didn't. Mm -hmm. But the death of Ron still boggles me. You don't have... You don't think... You don't know? I don't know. Like, because I don't feel like Mary was involved in writing the letters, but if Mary was involved in Ron's death, then that means she orchestrated the whole thing. Hmm. I'm not saying she didn't. I don't know this woman. But if she did, she is one evil bitch. If she didn't, man, that's really unfortunate. But I definitely think Karen is the reason that Paul went to jail. That she was like, well, we're going to set Paul up. But the thing is, is why would Mary go along with setting Paul up if she didn't see some sort of window of truth there? Mm Mm-hmm. But nothing about that whole situation, like, Paul was there at the beginning. He doesn't seem like, when you watch the episode, he doesn't seem like that kind of person who would have dirt on people like that. Mm -hmm. Like, I see this as 
something that Karen would do. Yeah, and when even when he got out, he was just so hard to still prove his innocence, you know? Yeah! I don't think a, a real criminal would, you know? Yeah, but also, like, he didn't just want to prove his innocence. He wanted to understand how his brother-in-law, or former brother-in-law, died. Yeah. Like, he gave a crap. Which, it didn't seem to me like Karen or Mary cared about the truth. Because it just logistically didn't make sense. If Paul was in jail and the letters kept coming, then Mary and Karen should have done something to get him out. You know? Mm -hmm. And they didn't. So that's a big tell for me. That they conspired. Yeah, it does. And they could have used the Circleville writer name at that point because we don't know who it was. Perhaps the original past, but if you see the way that the letters are written, which isn't something I talked about yet, it's in big block letters to make it really hard to not make common. Like, if you write everything in capitals and on lined paper to where it looks like it's printed. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. That's why I'm like, handwriting analysis. Really? Yeah. Highly recommend look up the pictures of the Circleville writer's letters, but my personal favorite is Elsico's. Like, what? But the fact that they even sent a, like, a postcard to Unsolved Mysteries in the middle of this. Like, the, and why would Sheriff Radcliffe consider a homicide and then all of a sudden switch his mind? Mm-hmm. And then... Karen cheats on her husband, gets the divorce, etc., etc., and Paul gets everything. I never thought I'd come to the defense of a white man before, but, you know, <laughs> times be what they are. If you had to choose between if Karen did it, if a, a Karen did it, or if a white guy did it. I know. Well, it doesn't make sense, because it's, like, the only person who really seemed to care about like figuring it out was Paul. And then they had him write all of the letters mm-hmm. to the Circleville writer. So that's my that's my opinion. What do you think? Do you think they took over the name or was it them all along? I think it was them all along. You do? Mm-hmm. Do you think they wrote a thousand letters to everyone just to, like, stir up some shit? And to kill her husband? I mean, hey, you know, people have done crazy things mm-hmm. to leave their husband. It's hard to say. Who do you think was on the phone then if they started it? Oh, my God, right? Um... Yeah. And who did he shoot? It's so hard to, like, imagine who did he shoot? Because a bullet was apparently... Missing? Yeah, no, apparently he shot because there was residue. There was no casing, no shell. Like, they couldn't find that. And then they crushed the car too fast for, like, any sort of evidence to be taken. And then... How was he already drunk when the kids were like, he wasn't? That part is what gets me. That part is why I feel like it's a lie. I don't think he was drunk. So, you know, we're going to have to ask the fans. The fact friends. Hey, fact friends. Give us your hot take on who you think the Circle Bill writer is. You can DM, you can email, you can tweet, you can Insta. Of course. Don't write us a letter. Yeah, please don't write me a letter. Uh, watch the Circleville writer have graduated to email. I might get one. I'm, <laughs> guys, I'll screenshot it to you. It'll be really funny. Um, but, you know, our outro gives you all the handles and all that. Uh, but to this day, you know, we don't know who the Circleville letter writer was. Um, I think it's either due to, like, shockingly terrible police work 
shockingly terrible police, shockingly terrible people, or just all of the above. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe something even more heinous, like maybe there is an outside person and everybody in this situation is very innocent and it was just the worst case ever and, like, the worst neighbor possible. You know what I mean? Series of unfortunate events. Teehee. Um, but what's the focus with Mary? Did anyone figure out the motive there? Why did Ron have to die? And why didn't he take note that his truck could have been tampered with? Like, was his truck tampered with? Did we ever find out? Um, but it's beyond terrifying to think about how much our neighbors could know about us. And because, like, of our patterns... Well, in quarantine, it's very easy to mm-hmm. know our patterns because uh, it's stay inside all times. But now that we live in, like, the age of the internet, we have given out a sense of privacy, but we also kind of have a network of security because we have those people who check on us in different ways. Like, if I don't text certain friends, they're like, are you dead? Mm-hmm. Like, where'd you go? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I text my thoughts to Twitter, essentially. Well, no, I don't text it, but I tweet my thoughts. Most robberies are by your own neighbor. Oh, yeah, that's so true. Because they know they see you leaving and going to work and or taking your kids to school. Yep. And, like, most abductions are by a family member. Yeah. Yeah. So... In a way, like, the, some people are like, the internet's going to ruin your life. But because we can be so connected that way, it actually kind of forms, like, an odd sense of security. Because that's going to be the first person to notice that you're not there, you know? Mm-hmm. But, like, I couldn't imagine this situation. I did live in a town of about 12,000 for somewhere between, like, 9 to 10 months. And I legitimately could not handle it. And, like, if any of your listeners... Any of you guys listeners, if you do it, I envy your ability to pull it off. Like, I couldn't handle having so few people that everyone knew me and they were like, oh, I haven't seen you in a few days. Or like, didn't I see you driving to Walmart? I was losing my shiitake mushrooms. I really could not handle it. And also, a lot of them are racist. And it was just, I heard the N-word for real and I just... I honestly slipped on a mental banana peel. I was like, what? But I mean, this was many years ago. So like, it was like one of those things where I was like, I didn't know people still use that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get that illusion of disbelief as a teenager. Oh, my city life sheltered me. Yeah. You know? And then you realize, oh, that place is terrifying. These people are actually real. <laughs> Woo! Um, but yeah, so like, you know, a city of 200,000. I even felt that was too small for me. Like, I am very comfortable in Los Angeles where I can blend in and just still find random people I've known across the country at a ramen restaurant in Studio City. It's wild. Mm-hmm. I definitely found someone I went to college with. Shout out to Megumi if you ever listened to this. I will never forget that day. Um, but you know what's funny? When you run into a family member in public. I've never done that because none of my family like even lives remotely near here. Uh, I always think it's so funny seeing my, my family just being a person. <laughs> like just being <laughs> like, in the drive-thru. It's so weird. It's the funniest thing. I used to feel that way about teachers. Yeah. I remember this thing. I wasn't. It was from a book where it was like, don't teachers live... Like, underneath their desk. <laughs> and, like, I saw a teacher. I was probably, like, six or seven. Like, I can't remember where I saw them. But for the first time, I was like, they're people? Yeah, like, they d- they go grocery shopping? Oh, my God. It's like They like watermelon? Yeah. What? It was like seeing a shooting star to yeah. see a teacher in public. Oh, my God. But, uh... However, you know, fear not, fact friends, it's 2020, not 1976. No new leads have appeared after the OG Unsolved Mysteries episode aired. The 1993 warning of the show was the last known of the Circleville writer, unless there were copycats. Um, 
or there were credible ones not documented that I don't know about. But, like, I like to think that the Circleville writer went out with the El Secos, because that's hilarious. So, for all of you at home who are going to puzzle this out with us, first off, email, tweet, Insta, send pictures, come up with something. But also, never forget the Circleville writer's last threat. Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay the Circleville writer. Thank you for listening. This podcast was surprisingly produced by me. Original music by Miranda Miller. You can find us both on Twitter and Instagram at TalkAboutFacts. That's T-A-L-K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-S. Or email recommendations to ltatfpodcast at gmail.com. Stay safe out there, friends.